Thank you, Jay. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. I was hoping to, um, well, my plan was to uh, have a sermon today that fit somewhat with the holiday season. And as you could see in the passage that Jay read, um, the profaning of the Sabbaths was a very uh, consistent problem for the nation of Israel. And so I thought we'll have a, a sermon dealing with this idea of the Sabbath and talk about what it means to enjoy the rest and the provision of God. Uh, but the conversation, as, as Deirdre noted, um, over the last couple of weeks in our public discourse, at least in regard to government and politics and the election and all that stuff and COVID-19, has been a lot of conversations about money. Um, people have lost jobs, businesses are failing. We've seen governments around the world respond with, with uh, direct payments to people, and the, the direct payments from our government have started to come. Uh, forgivable loans, tax reductions, deferments, Federal Reserve Bank has been directly lending to large corporations. Um, and so this is, has brought about, and, and over the course of this year, it's been very significant, uh, renewed conversations around the disparities, the economic disparities that exist in our culture. Uh, this has been a, was a popular uh, topic in the, the presidential and, and other government campaigns. There's been conversations about uh, fair, fair tax rates, uh, cost of higher education, student debt, all of these conversations around money over the last year and, and even over the last couple of weeks in this uh, so-called holiday season. And in this, in this public dialogue, and interestingly enough, in, in regard to the Sabbath, there's, there actually is a lot of integration with these ideas, and we're going to slowly un unwind this, but in this public dialogue around um, the nation's wealth and these economic issues, one of the metaphors that consistently gets used is that of a pie. Uh, the pie represents the nation's wealth, and too much of the pie is going to too few people, and the majority of the people aren't getting enough of the pie. Um, and I think that there are some problems with this pie metaphor that reflects our greater problems around our economic conversation, which actually led to the, actually was the same problems that Israel was facing as Ezekiel was bringing prophecies and judgments from God against them. So if you just think about a pie for a moment, you have to ask the question, well, who bakes the pie? Who is the baker? Is, the, is it the government? Is it the markets? Is it capital? Is it labor? Is it the workers? Um, who is the baker of the pie? And a, a pie, you know, is a, a fixed size. Um, is the nation's wealth fixed? You know, even, even if you get the massive four-pound Costco pie, it's still fixed, all right? It's big, but it's still fixed. So is the nation's wealth fixed? Is it, is it set to a particular size? Also, the a pie is baked. Everything kind of becomes fixed. You know, the ingredients are thrown in, the baker puts it all together, but then it's baked. Is the, is the nation's wealth stagnant? Is it stagnant? You know, we hear a lot of the, uh, the top 
this growing disparity between the top 10% and the lower 10%. And you kind of can get the idea that, that, the, that the top 10% is always the same group of people and the top bottom 10% are always the same group of people. But economists show that, the, that it's constantly changing. The top 10% one year, they're not going to be the same people over the next few years. And the lower 10% over the next few years are not going to be the same people. So really, the, the nation's wealth and where it sits is, is not stagnant as it seems. And I think also we see that the pie is a human creation of things that God has created uh, God has created apples and all of the other ingredients that go into it. Humanity has never created something from nothing. Anyway, so that's the, that's the pie metaphor. And I think the biggest problem about the pie metaphor, and in, large, and in large part, all of our discussions around economics as a culture, is that God is left out. God is left out. The creator and sustainer of all things he who has provided everything for every living being on the face of this planet is left out of the conversation. And I think maybe a better metaphor is a garden. See, a garden, things come to life. They don't get baked. And yes, a garden involves human activity, just like a pie, but the, the life-giving elements of a garden are from God. Gardens have virtually unlimited growth and variety. And there again, there are a lot of other things to consider about the metaphor, but my point today isn't to evaluate the various metaphors used in our discussions of the nation's wealth. The main point that I want to bring out today is, is much of our conversation about economics and, and the nation's wealth and the disparities and all of these various things in our culture is that God is left out of the dialogue. And it's the same problem that Israel had. Regardless of where government and the markets and capital and labor, regardless of how all those things intersect, regardless of our political philosophies, without God at the foundation of how we think about human prosperity and wealth and all of these kinds of things, the generational sins of greed, of envy, of oppression are going to continue to enslave and envelop humanity and cause problems for us here on earth. And that, indeed, was, again, what was happening in the nation of Israel. As we've seen over the last few weeks, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do right now um, is look at what was going on in the nation of Israel that led to their collapse of a nation, that led to God bringing judgment upon them. And so we saw a few weeks ago from Lawrence just one of the things that Israel was guilty of was, was the oppression of the poor and the weak and the needy. And that is just one aspect, one generational sin, one sin that's consistent across cultures and times. That's what happens when God is left out of the discussion. As Jay read, uh, God gave laws to Israel, the law of the Sabbath in particular, uh, as, as a protection against this tendency to leave God out of the conversation. As the uh, passage in Ezekiel stated, um, the law of the Sabbath 
was a part of all of the other laws, the point of which was to set apart Israel as different, to set apart Israel as holy from the other nations. And the Sabbath law was one of the most important. Um, You see in the text that it says, above all. Above all, keep the Sabbaths. And so the Sabbath was refraining from work that provided economic prosperity. And this acknowledged that God was their sustainer. They would take a day off, and God would continue to provide for them. They didn't have to work all of the time. And this was intended so that they would grow in their appreciation and gratitude towards God, and it would also grow in their enjoyment. But as Jay read, and as we see throughout Israel's history as explained by the prophets, they forsook and profaned the Sabbath for most of their history, which again was one of the reasons for their downfall. So today what I want to do is just explain uh, the Sabbath a little bit more in detail, the history of the Sabbath, the intent of the Sabbath, um, and then what is the Sabbath under Christ? It is the only one of the Ten Commandments, which kind of represent the core of the laws that God gave to Israel. It is the only one that is not repeated to the church. And so what is the Sabbath to us? So we want to look at that, and how are, how are we to see God in our lives as our ongoing and sustaining um, God? So as I stated, um, we see the idea of the Sabbath coming out of the Scriptures and coming out of the history of Israel. So we see it in chapter 2 of Genesis. When God created the earth, he worked for six days, and then he took off the seventh. He rested on the seventh. And it said that God blessed and made the Sabbath holy, which means that it was elevated in God's mind. He delighted in that seventh day. He praised that seventh day. He found joy in that seventh day. He found joy and delight in that day of rest where he could look back on his work, have joy in what he did, but then enjoy the the day off, enjoy the rest. Set it apart from the other six days. Those six days are for work. This day is for rest and enjoyment. Now, God has made us in his image. One of the big themes of the book of Genesis and one of the big themes of throughout all of Scripture. And God wanted us to share in that similar experience. So he gave us the week, we work for six days, and then we take off the seventh. This was the law that God gave to Israel in the Mosaic, in the Mosaic law. And he states in there, just like it's stated in Ezekiel, that the Sabbath law, the fourth commandment, would be a sign between God and Israel so that they would know that it is God who sanctifies them. That it is God who sanctifies. Now, the word sanctify means to make holy or to set apart, to cleanse. So how is it that the law of the Sabbath showed that it was God who set apart Israel to be holy, to show that it was God who cleansed them and made them holy, to to make them more pure and holy in his sight. And I think that there are really two profound ways that you see in the reasoning around the Sabbath throughout the Old Testament and in how the story unfolds. The first thing 
that I think showed that Israel was a distinct nation from all of the other nations is, is through economic prosperity. And so God told Israel, work for six days, rest on the seventh, and enjoy the fruit of your labors, enjoy the rest, delight in it. And I will bless you and prosper you, more so than I bless and prosper the other nations. So here is a nation that God is cleansing and making holy and setting aside. If they have more economic prosperity than the other nations, but are working one-seventh or about 14% less, that is going to show something very different that is happening to Israel when compared to the other nations. It's going to show that there is that God is, is for them and God is at work in them and that God is prospering them. So this would then create within, so there's that external reality of economic prosperity that the nation would experience. And I think that this would create the second way that we can see God sanctifying them. God acts towards us in love and mercy. And, when we, and we are called to respond to that love and mercy. And what, and what a, 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 a heartfelt receptivity to God's love and mercy um, is, is to desire to know him more. It's a desire to be faithful to him. It's a desire to love him. It's a desire to obey him. And so that create when, when we as people, when, Israelite, when, when, when the Israelites could see God fulfilling his promises and gifting them with that rest and that enjoyment and that they were even more prosperous than the other nations, this would, this would draw them to love God more. This would draw them to obedience more. And so that, that work of internal cleansing, that work of internal sanctification was going on as God demonstrated his unmerited love and favor towards them. And again, the scriptures throughout uh, the, the law and the prophets state that this was above all, it was the fourth commandment. I believe the first one is, you shall love the Lord your God alone, so worship no other gods, make no idols, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and then keep the Sabbath. All these first laws had to do with their orientation toward God. And so this is the, 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 the fourth one. Above all, above all, keep the Sabbath. And it seems like you know, there's this this primacy around God bringing Israel economic prosperity and rest and enjoyment. If, if God, above all, set this as a requirement for hey, set this day aside so that you know that I am the one who provides for you, but not just for your material prosperity, but also for your rest and for your enjoyment. It seems like if, if, if God could put this law into place, it would conquer what was probably their, the greatest temptation. It would conquer probably what was their greatest idol in, in turning to other gods. And I think Jesus' instructions in the Gospels also reflect this. You know, Jesus said that the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all evil. And then Jesus said that you cannot worship both God and mammon, or God and money, God and material possessions. You can't worship both at the same time. And so it seems like 
This command around the Sabbath directly went after what, what is within our hearts our, our most likely propensity to fall away from God. The belief, the belief that we will be better off, we will be more prosperous, we will be more happy without God. That's our biggest idol. And this, this command around the Sabbath was a corrective against that. God is the source of our material prosperity. God is the source of our rest. God is the source of our ability to enjoy everything here on this earth. And the Sabbath was there to remind them of that. But Israel profaned and forsook the Sabbath throughout its entire history, which was shown in the, the repeated uh, phrase throughout Ezekiel, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten me which led to idolatrous, oppressive, envious, and lawlessness in that culture. Now, what about us? There is no Sabbath under Christ. In fact, one of the things that we see throughout the story of the book of, in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles uh, is that there was this repeated effort from Jewish Christians who were still trying to work out what it meant to live under Christ while formally being under the law. There was a lot of efforts made by formerly Jew, formal, formal uh, well, they were Jewish people that had become Christians. Uh, they put a lot of effort into trying to put the Sabbath law onto the churches. And there was a lot of energy that the apostles extended to keep the churches away from following the Sabbath law. And it's a very important reason why. There is no Sabbath law under Christ because Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath law. Christ is, the, is, is God's full provision of material prosperity, Christ is God's full provision for the church for its rest. Christ is the full provision of God for the church for our happiness and joy. For us to continue to pursue the Sabbath day, to follow the Sabbath day, uh, week after week, year after year, would be to say the fullness of God through Christ has not yet been given. So backing off of and abolishing the Sabbath day, like all of the other ordinances found in the Mosaic Code, is a recognition that the fullness of God through Christ has been made available. So there's no Sabbath law. God richly provided his Son, and he gifted his Holy Spirit to us. And that, that gift of the Holy Spirit to us is is the gift to us that enables us to have a sense of peace in the midst of tribulation and suffering. It's the gift of, of happiness that we're able to experience, and joy that we're able to experience even in the midst of a trial. That, that Holy Spirit affects our spirit, and it's, a, it's supernatural work in us causes us to rise above the challenges of the earth and bring about the experience of the fruits of the Spirit in us. Peace, joy, Happiness, rest. But the author of Hebrews, who probably develops this idea of Christ being our Sabbath day the most, it's kind of funny. He encourages us, he commands us, you must strive to enter into the rest. We must work hard in order to rest. Well, that striving 
is through obedience to Jesus Christ. And as we see throughout Jesus' teachings in the Gospels and Jesus' teachings through the Apostles in the New Testament, there are a lot of of commands and instructions that Jesus gives um, in regard to how we approach work and how we approach the use of our money. We are to work as unto the Lord. We are to work with honesty and integrity. We are to pay employees that may work for us. We are to pay them fair wages. We are to refrain from coveting, which is desiring what somebody else has, and envy. We are, he teaches us to avoid these things. We are to support a gospel ministry. We are to support leaders in the church that preach and teach and lead. We are to care for widows in need. We are to meet the pressing needs of our brothers and sisters in the church and, and the pressing needs of the world. And we are to do all of these things with a spirit of joy and generosity from the first and the best of what we have and not begrudgingly. And these instructions that Jesus has given, just like the Sabbath law, they address idolatries that have a great propensity to enslave us and to take our hearts. We're no different than the people of Israel. And there's all these instructions that God has given with with the, and finally, giving us also uh, a sense that um, we are to live life in a spirit of being rested. We are to live life in peace. We are to live life in joy. So we have these other, these other commands and instructions, and, and, and Jesus said our, our walk in him is not burdensome, but... They are obligations, they are burdens that we have to obey Jesus, to obey the author of Hebrews when he says, work hard and strive to enter the rest. And so, you know, we, I think we spend a good deal of time in addressing a lot of these instructions about work and, and money. And, and what I want to do today is highlight one that I think most reflects the spirit of the Sabbath, the challenge of enjoyment. The challenge of experiencing peace and happiness. We wouldn't consider this an egregious sin. It's not, you know, it's not murder, it's not stealing. But if we're not able to exist in a place of peace and in a place of happiness, there's something going on within us that reflects misplaced hope and to some degree, idolatry. These are God's gifts to us and are fruits of the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 says this, For the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now the instruction starts out as an instruction to the rich of this present age. But Paul says that God richly provides us, not just the rich in this present age, God richly provides us us with everything 
to enjoy. So God's desire is for us to experience a rest in him, a vacation where we really are resting and that we are enjoying the fruit of our labors. We are enjoying our rest and we can enjoy these things and experience these things in peace. So two things, rest and enjoyment. Well, we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, God experienced these things. God would like us, and it's his God's will and purpose for us to experience these things. So rest is the presence of peace, and it's the absence of any emotions that reflect sin. Not necessarily transgression, but fear and anxiety and bitterness and envy and covetousness, all of these, these feelings that we have, anger, these are sometimes expressions of intentional acts of sin or transgressions. Sometimes they're just, they, they reflect the presence of, of sin that's affecting us, sin that we've committed, sins that others have committed against us. We don't, we don't know. We can't see these things sometimes, but it still reflects sin and its effect on us. So God desires that we experience peace and rest. The absence of these things. And he desires that we experience enjoyment. Enjoyment is just literally the experience of fulfilled desires. The experience of fulfilled desires. So in closing here, I want to look at what is it, what's going on when we're not experiencing rest and enjoyment in our work, in our, in our daily lives? What if we're not experiencing rest and enjoyment from the fruit of our labors? Well, I think that there are probably a lot of things. I'm going to look quickly here at, at five things. I think the first thing we need to look at is our work itself. If our work is not good, okay, work is to be something that contributes to the welfare of others. Okay, we, we work... As a reflection of the image of God, we work to bring life for ourselves, our families, and other people. If our work is not good, um, we're not going to have the experience of the Spirit um, blessing us with peace. If we're, if we're selling drugs, it's not a good work. That's okay? an extreme example. But if we're not engaged in a good, profitable, meaningful work, we're not going to experience these things. Second, if our work, even if it's a good work, if it's driven by covetous and envious desires, like, I'm going to do this work so I can be like this other person, so I can have this, this, and this, and then I will require, acquire some sort of status, or I will acquire security. One of the things that, that Paul brings out in that letter to Timothy is that it's, it's very common for us as people to put our hope in riches for, for a sense of security, for a sense of certainty. If these are what's driving our work so that we can have a sense of security, so that we can have what other people have, those things will never uh, be accomplished. The Spirit will not bring about what only God can give, peace, rest, enjoyment. Third thing, we may be lazy. We may not work. Or we may be slack and lazy in our work. And, and this is to put ourselves above God. 
See, God worked for six days and then rested. He commands his people to work and to enjoy rest and what he provides through the work. If we're not working hard to provide for our needs, the needs of our families, the needs of the church, the needs of the gospel ministry, the needs of the, of the, pressing, world, of the pressing needs in our church, the needs of the world around us, if we're not working for the good of others and working hard for that, we're not going to experience rest. We're not going to experience enjoyment. The New Testament teaches, Jesus teaches that if we don't work, we don't eat. The fourth thing, the fourth thing that I think inhibits us experiencing peace and enjoyment is that I think for some of us, we may believe that peace and enjoyment is not really possible until the work is completely over. Right? So uh, until the work is done, I'm not going to be able to take some time and rest. I'm not going to be able to enjoy the fruit of my labors until the work's done. Or I'm not going to be able to experience peace and the fruit of my labors and enter into any sort of rest uh, until what I desire from my work to be fulfilled. For example, if I believe that that having a certain income or a certain net worth is going to bring me to a place where I finally have economic security and I can't stop working until I've got economic security, you're not going to enter into rest. You're not going to enter into an enjoyment of the fruit of your labors because your goal will never be reached. Because riches don't provide those things. Riches don't provide security Riches don't provide rest. Riches don't provide joy. Those things come from God. And the fifth thing, and I, and I, and I, and I see this in, in conversations and hear this in conversations with people. Sometimes we don't enter into the, the rest and joy that God provides because we don't think we deserve it. We don't think we deserve it. And a lot of this is driven by a comparison, like maybe people close to us or people that we read about, people that we love. We don't see them or we, or we see, you know, we're, we're constantly reading reports of, of the, the poor and needy in our world and we see them not enjoying material possessions. We see them not enjoying the fruits of their labors. We see them not being in a place of rest. And so... We see other people not experiencing these things, and we think to ourselves, well, why should I experience these things? Sometimes I think we feel guilty for experiencing these things when others aren't. And I understand the, the, the empathy or the compassion present in that, but really those understandings are coming from a, of a works-based view. See, we don't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything. The scriptures teach us that what we deserve is wrath and judgment. Anything that we experience that is a good thing, any person, whether they're Christian or not, anything that we experience that is good is from the hand of God by an act of his mercy and by an act of his love. So, what the good that we have in our lives is, is not because we've done something to earn it. 
It's because God has, in his mercy, given it to us. God is the creator and sustainer through Jesus Christ of all things. See, God's desire is for us as his people to experience rest and enjoyment. To deny this or or to resist it because we feel like we don't deserve it or to resist it because not everybody else is also experiencing it, to deny what God's intent is for us is to reject his gifts. What parent is happy with a child that rejects your gifts? And we just finished Christmas time. For all of you parents out there, if you have, you know, you, you give a gift to your children and they open it up and they say, this, I don't want this. I don't deserve this. Why are you giving this to me? That would, that would crush us. We can't do that to God. And maybe we see ourselves as different from others. God gives certain gifts to others, sometimes less, sometimes more than what we experience. Just like his parents, we see our kids, we see their needs, we see their wants, we see what would make them happy. We we give gifts differently. We didn't give any of the same gifts to our kids that we gave to each other. we, We give gifts on the basis of of where they're at and what we see in their lives and where we see God leading and moving in them. And God gives gifts the same way. God knows what we need for us to work. God knows what we need in order for us to be happy. God knows what we need in order for us to be sustained. God knows what we need in order for us to be sanctified. God knows what we need in order for us to be rest, to be at rest. And we also need to recognize that that rest and enjoyment are fruits of the Spirit. They are fruits of a walk in Christ. The free gift of God in the Holy Spirit is available to all. To all. That's what the Scriptures teach. And again, to experience these things is the fulfillment of God's purposes for His people. Rest and joy are his intents for us, even in the midst of trial and suffering. That's one of the things we pray in, out of Colossians, that we would be able to endure the trials and suffering in our life with joy and gratitude and peace. And so for us to walk in the, in the Spirit and experience these things honors God and it testifies to the work of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God is setting us apart, and one of the ways he sets us apart is our experience of happiness and peace in the midst of this world, which is really terrible. We are living witnesses, and so we we cannot reject the experience of rest and joy because others aren't experiencing it or because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it, but that's all about what the gospel is, the free gift of God through Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we do nothing to work for. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't show compassion to others. It doesn't mean that we don't help others in need. Actually, quite the opposite. When we experience the grace of God, it should be compelling us to be generous and kind and to meet other people's needs because we are living expressions of the very gospel itself. 
I think it all comes down to the same problem that Israel had. You know, when God, when God rejected the first generation of Israelites from going into the land, he said, you have not believed in me. You have not believed my promises. The scriptures teach that, that God richly provides for us. God richly provides for us according to the riches, his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. The prayer out of Philippians, that God would provide all of our needs according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ, which are beyond number, beyond capacity. Uh, it's not a pie. It's a garden without borders and always is springing forth in life. If we believe that God richly provides for us, and if we believe Jesus' promises, that he will meet our needs, that he will sustain us, that he will provide rest, that he will provide joy from the fruit of our work, that he will provide joy as we follow him and strive and work hard to obey his commands in regard to our work, in regard to our, the use of our resources. If we believe those things, we will enter into a life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ because God has already provided for us the, in the most abundant way through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the creator and sustainer. See, see, Jesus as creator and sustainer came to this earth, took upon our finite, weak, vulnerable, fleshly bodies. He came into our world as creator and sustainer. And he died, he entered into our death so that we could enter into his life. And when we enter into his life with him as creator and sustainer, we enter into the fullness of God's provision. To know Jesus, to know Jesus is to enter into the experience of rest and joy. Let me pray. God, thank you for the teaching on the Sabbath day that we see throughout the, the Old Testament especially, but thank you, Lord God, for bringing it to fullness in Jesus, that in him we have rest, we have provision. He is the creator and sustainer. He is the giver of joy and happiness and rest. God, let us draw near to Christ. As we start this new year, let us start this new year with a perspective of, of hope in you, and not in the uncertainty of riches, which, are, which we can see in our world is just everywhere. In your son's name we pray, amen.